Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. If you don't have your Bible today or you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one near you. Uh, You can cheat and open up to page 791 and find chapter 2, verse 10. Again, the chapters are the big numbers and the verses are the small numbers. Uh, You'll want to make sure that you're with us because if not, uh, you'll probably get bored because we're going to spend most of our time in the scriptures this morning. So Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, let's go ahead and turn to prayer. And, uh, and when you find your place, you can join us by bowing your head and closing your eyes. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to open up your word, uh, to study it, and to be changed by it. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself in a mighty way. Father, help us to understand the truth of the gospel, uh, that we are broken people in desperate need of a Savior. Father, help us to see Jesus clearly in this text. Help us to to draw strength from his faithfulness and help us to, um, Father, use the Holy Spirit to bend our hearts back towards you. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your law. We speak, or Lord, we ask you to speak for your servants are listening. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I want to paraphrase a a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. When I tell us that the gospel simply means this, that we are worse off than we realize and we're more loved than we can imagine. The gospel means that we are worse off than we realize and we're more loved than we can imagine. I think for most Americans, it's not the difficulty of hearing uh, that we're more loved than we can imagine that's the problem. Uh, You know, you go to some cultures and they feel this guilt over their sin and so the cross and the resurrection is hard for them to comprehend that, that it is merely an act of faith that changes their life, draws them into obedience, and leads to their salvation. For most of us in the West, the issue is that we don't think we're worse off than we realize. We think we're doing okay. We think we can stand before God and say, I did my best, and that's good enough. I saw recently... A compilation of test scores and grades. And do you realize that in high schools and colleges, there are more students making A's than have ever been made? But also the test scores are the lowest they've ever been. There is a, there's a, a desire to affirm even oftentimes mediocrity. And we have to understand that we serve and love and worship a holy God. A holy God who gives straightforward laws and commands that his people are to obey. And the reality is, is that you and I cannot pass those tests. If we took a simple three-question test from the Ten Commandments, I guarantee you each of us will have failed this week and Many of us probably failed it this morning. 
So let me ask you these three questions. Have you lied this week? Even if it was just a little white lie. In the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not bear false witness. That is verse 16. Second question. Have you had an intense feeling of hate for someone this week? And don't say you don't hate, you just dislike. That's the coward's way out, right? You, you know what we're talking about here. Now, you're right. It doesn't say you shall not hate in the Ten Commandments. But it does say you shall not murder. That's verse 13. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, tells us that if you hate someone, you've committed murder against them in your heart. How about coveting? That's verse 17. Have you looked at somebody's home or car or television or, or any number of things? Maybe, you know, there were a couple times this week on vacation when I looked at people's well-behaved children and coveted a little bit, right? I think you know what I'm talking about there. Um, but but we, we have all failed the Ten Commandment test this week. If you did okay with those three, there's seven more, Right? Um, the reality is, is that we are worse off than we realize. In God's eyes, we are, we are guilty before him and subject for judgment. But it is only because of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ that we can live in freedom and without fear of judgment. And it is with this idea of grace that we jump into Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10, as we begin his third sermon. So we look at verses 10 and 11, and here's what we are told. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. So what we see from the dating of this is that we're a little over um, two months since his second sermon. We are about to hear Haggai's third sermon to the people of Israel, to the returned exiles into Jerusalem. And we are reminded again that this is not just Haggai speaking. that This is the word of the Lord came by, the, by Haggai the prophet This is God speaking through Haggai. This is Haggai's voice, but these are God's words to his people. And again, this title for God, the Lord of hosts, shows up. This is a reminder from the first week of July all the way to now. And next week too, because we'll finish Haggai next week. Um, that we are speaking about the God of the universe. The God who hung the stars. The God who placed our planet perfectly between a sun and moon to rotate around the sun with the moon rotating around us to control our tides, to give us warmth and cool, to make this planet habitable. This is the God that we serve. The God of angel armies. The God who is king over the, over the universe. And so God tells the people to ask the priests about the law. The priests are descendants of Levi. 
They are in charge of, of what used to be the tabernacle, what is now the temple. They are in charge of the religious things of the people of Israel. They are the leaders of worship, and they are the ones who are in charge of the sacrifices. They are the representatives before God of the people of Israel. And he tells the people of Israel to ask about the law. The religious rules that were given to Israel in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Three of the first four books of your Bible. The idea of the law is that by obeying, the people of God would love him and that life would be good in Israel. And of course, we've seen again and again, pretty much from the beginning, right? From when Moses gives the law, and Aaron and his sons take up the mantle of the priests. The people of Israel have broken the law of the Lord again and again and again. This is to help us remember, Christians, that our hope is in Jesus, that he fulfilled and kept the law perfectly, and that his righteousness is given to us. But we go to verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. So this is, a, this is an odd hypothetical, especially for us. But one of the things that we need to understand, one of the things that God is driving towards with this teaching from Haggai is that it matters who the people of Israel surround themselves with. It matters what religious activities they do. God uses, as an example, the holy meat. Now, this doesn't mean that this is like meat handed from God, all right? This is meat that has been set apart. In fact, it is meat that has been, it, it comes from one of the animals that were sacrificed by the people of Israel and by the priests. And this meat was set apart for the priests to enjoy with their family. And so oftentimes when the sacrifices would take place, different parts of the meat were to be had by the priests and also by their families. And so the question is, if this, if this holy meat, if this set-apart meat touches some bread or some oil or some stew, does it make all of it holy? And the answer there is no. Holy meat will not make another article of food consecrated. But then you get into this question of, of the dead body, right? If someone touches a dead body and then touches the bread, does it become unclean? In Leviticus, you see multiple times where... The people of Israel were not allowed to touch dead bodies or they would become unclean. And in fact, in Leviticus 22, verses 4 and 6, it specifically talks about priests touching dead bodies. Now, if someone dies, of course you have to take, you can't just leave the body there. You have to take care of it. You have to bury it. You have to do the, the, appropriate, um, the appropriate things to, to, to prepare it for burial. But the rule was, that if you touched a dead body, you had to spend a day outside of the camp, and then you had to go through a ritual washing, and then you could return. 
And the idea here is that an unclean person, someone who has touched a dead body, does make things unclean when they touch them. So we go to verse 14 to hopefully get some clarification on this hypothetical. Then Haggai answered and said, so, it is, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So Haggai is tying this teaching, these questions, with what he's about to say. He wants the people to know that as returned exiles, they have been defiled. And notice how God talks about them, right? He's been saying, my people, throughout this book. But here he says, this people and this nation. This is sort of like, I don't know if you ever did this, but my wife and I, right? When our children disobey and the other doesn't know about it, oftentimes we will begin the sentence with your children or your child, right? Not our children or my children, but your children. Y'all are acting like you don't know what I'm talking about. I don't think you're uh, being completely honest here. But anyways, um, God is, is showing them that they are, they are under his discipline. He has contempt for them because they have broken his law. Friends, Haggai says in the middle of his sentence, declares the Lord so that we won't forget this isn't just crotchety old Haggai complaining about the people. This is the God of the universe. This is the Lord of hosts. The only true God, their God, calling them out on their spiritual deadness. We don't know what exactly is going on that causes this, but the teaching is clear. Something has created a deadness in the returned exiles. And whatever they do and whatever they touch becomes unclean because they are not obeying God. Their work is seen as if an unclean person is working. And even worse, their sacrifices, their offerings are seen as unclean because their hands are dirty. This brings us to our first point this morning. This reality that we are a sinful people worshiping a holy God. We are a sinful people worshiping a holy God. On August 21st, there's supposed to be a solar eclipse, a total solar eclipse that is going to go across the United States. You may have heard of this. You, you may not have. Um, but, but here in New Mexico, we're going to be able to see a partial eclipse. If you drove up to Wyoming or over into certain parts of, of Kansas and Oklahoma, you'd be able to see the total eclipse completely. It's going to follow a line from Oregon all the way down to South Carolina. And so for this total eclipse, if you're going to watch it, you need a special pair of glasses. And the reason you need a special pair of glasses is if you're taking in the total eclipse and then the sun peeks out again from behind the eclipse, guess what's going to happen? It's going to do damage to your eyes to go from that complete darkness to then again being in the presence of the sun. This is a great reminder of what it is to be before God. 
Remember how in the Old and New Testaments alike, whenever someone saw God face to face, they fell down on their face. They felt the heaviness of his holiness and the the inadequacy of their sinfulness to stand before him. Friends, we are a sinful people worshiping a holy God. We are bringing in our hands nothing but sin. But the good news is, is that Jesus makes us clean. By his work on the cross, by our faith in him, by his taking our sins upon himself and paying the penalty, our hands are washed clean, not by anything that we've done, but by the blood of his sacrifice. And so friends, if you're standing in here today and you are unsure about Jesus, you're not sure if you trust in his life, death, and resurrection for your salvation. Let me ask you a question. Are your hands clean enough without him? Can you pass a test of morality? Have you lived a perfect life? Because if not, you will be guilty before God. And you need someone to stand in your place. And Jesus has done just that. Christian, this is a reminder and a call for us to love holiness, to love the holiness of God, to desire to have holiness in our lives. Friends, we love the idea of grace. We revel in that. We are thankful for it. But God doesn't call us to spiritual slothness. He doesn't call us to live however we want to live and claim the name of Christ. If you are saved, you will love the holiness of God. You will desire to live a holy life. Will you do it perfectly? Absolutely not. That's what grace is for. But grace is not for people who do not desire holiness. Church, we should love holiness together with grace. Right? We should all strive to be holy people living holy lives We want to be, if you go back to the Old Testament, oftentimes God will tell the nation of Israel that they are to serve as priests for him to the other nations. That they are to live in a a light of obedience that will make the other nations want to be like them. And we see moments of that, right? In the Exodus, the people of Egypt, some of them jump in and become Israelites because they want to worship the God of Israel. The book of Ruth, right? She is a Moabite, or if you read the King James, a Moabitess, right? But she, she is not a person of Israel, but she joins because of her love for her mother-in-law, but also her love for the Lord. We need to love holiness together with grace. We need to live differently than the people around us. We need to live lives where people look at us and say, I want that, and then show them the gospel through our speech. But friends, in the public square, don't be surprised by sin. Don't be surprised when people act sinful on Facebook. Don't be surprised when people act sinful around you, when they're at work or when they're at play, because sinners sin, right? And and the, the answer to that sin is not do better. The answer to that sin is Jesus. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be confronted by God's holiness, but also by his love and grace found in his son. So we move to verse 15. Haggai continues. 
Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there was but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was but 20. God says, consider from this day onward. He's telling the people of Israel, but he's also telling us to be thoughtful, to think big thoughts about God, about ourselves, about our families and our church, to remember who God has been throughout the history of humanity and to look forward to who God promises to be in the building up of his church, in the return of Jesus and in his forever kingdom. We need to be considerate and thoughtful people. We don't need to come home from work and forget about our lives in front of the television. I'm not telling you the TV is sinful, but I am telling you that every day you should be thinking big thoughts about God. And those thoughts should be defined by his word. Friends, you believe and trust in and serve a God that is bigger than you can imagine. And unfortunately, we tend to make him very small. It's where we can fold him up and stick him in our pocket. But he is a big, majestic God who calls for our worship, not for our forgetfulness. But he tells them to remember and look forward. And he says, Stone by stone, right? Before stone was, was put upon stone. And this is to remind them that they've repaired the temple. He's calling them to remember not years ago, not when their grandparents lived or their great-great-grandparents lived, but remember what it was like for you just a few short months ago. God says, I am the one who began to dwindle your harvest. I am the one who took away some of your grain by by, well, we'll talk about that in a second, but I'm the one who did that. He says, I'm the one who began to dwindle your vats of wine. And if that makes you uncomfortable, we'll just insert Diet Coke there, right? But, but anyways, um, God is telling them, I am the one who disciplined you. And then we move to verse 17. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Friends, God is the one who caused the blight and the mildew and the hail. And we saw, like don't forget this, two months ago, there was a moment of repentance. right? They repented and they began to rebuild the temple, but something has happened. And we don't know what it is because Haggai doesn't tell us. But something has happened. And there's a spiritual deadness that has entered the people. And he says, you have not completely turned to me. And friends, when we read this, right, as a community of farmers, we hear about blight and mildew and hail, and that makes our stomach turn, right? It makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to hear of these things. But notice what Haggai is saying here. And this is true for us today as much as it was for them. What does, it, what does it profit your soul if all your, produ if all your produce is brought in, but you perish in hell? It is much better for God to discipline us, to take things away from us, 
so that we lean on him and trust him and turn back to him than to allow us to bring all of our produce in and not realize the sin that's in our lives. We go to verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barns? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive trees have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Haggai wants them to mark down this day. He wants them to remember the 24th day of the ninth month. Because this is the day that God promised that the grain and the vine and the fig and the pomegranate and the olive, which right now are giving nothing, they will have something very soon. Because God will provide for his people. God will bless his people. He says, I am your God and you are my people. You repent and you obey and I will take care of everything else. That is what God is saying to the returned exiles. And that's also what he's saying to us. Friends, we, this is our second point. We are a faithless people loved by a faithful God. We are a faithless people loved by a faithful God. Last week, uh, Megan and I started a movie. I was able to finish it. She, she conked out on me. But uh, it's a movie called Fences. It stars Denzel Washington. And um, it's a story of this man named Troy uh, who grew up in the, in the 30s and 40s in, in Alabama in, in, pro, in abject poverty. Uh, grew up in a sharecropping family, made his way up to Pittsburgh, uh, met his wife, uh, was actually a, a pretty famous Negro League baseball player, um, but, but never got rich off of it because, one, it was baseball in the 40s and 50s, and two, it was the Negro Leagues, right? They weren't paid the same way uh, that the major leagues were. But anyways, um, Troy, he, he, he has a... A son from a previous relationship, he, he's married and he has a, a son from that relationship. And we come to find out, and if you haven't seen the movie and you wanted to see it, I apologize. I'm, I'm spoiling it for you. Um, but I would encourage you, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful movie. Um, but, but, but you come to realize that Troy has another woman on the side. And that woman has become pregnant. And he tells his wife Rose and she's brokenhearted by it, but she stays with him. And when it comes time for this baby to be born, the, the mother dies. So Troy brings the baby home. And Rose says, we will, we will raise this child as our own. She had a faithless husband. But she was faithful not just to him, but, but also to this child. Friends, this is, this is us with God. We so easily turn aside to other things. We so easily give in to our idolatry. And God remains faithful to us. And friends, the reason he does that is because Jesus is your faithfulness. 
When you turn from your sins and place your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God looks upon your life not as a string of sometimes faithful, sometimes failing, because that's what our life is, right? But he looks at us through the blood of Jesus, and he sees Jesus' faithfulness again and again and again. Jesus was tempted and he did not give in. We are tempted and we do give in. It is Jesus' faithfulness given to us in our time of faith because of his work on the cross that allows us to stand before God with open hands that are clean and not filthy. And so again, to those of you that are sitting on the fence, unsure of whether you can trust Jesus or not, let me ask you this question. Are you faithful enough? Can you fulfill the law like Jesus did? Can you be perfect in obedience even in the moments of horrible temptation? Friends, I would encourage you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Stop trying to save yourself. It cannot be done. Christian, the first thing we should do is be amazed at grace. Let the graciousness of God overwhelm us and lead us to be faithful. Live faithful lives. Follow Jesus in everything that you do. Will you stumble? Absolutely. Will you wander away? Absolutely. But that's why the church is here. That's why you've been gifted a faith family. So that we can lovingly and gently pick each other up and pull each other back in. That's why, friends, as a church, we need to encourage faithfulness with grace. Encourage faithfulness with grace. We need to be confronted by the truth. And sometimes we need to be jolted by the truth. But all of it should, should be done with grace. All correction, all encouragement, all bringing back into the fold should be done not as righteous people to unrighteous people, but as broken sinner to broken sinner. One who has been put back together by Jesus to another who is being put back together by Jesus. We encourage faithfulness with grace. And finally, friends, in the public square, we need to aim for missionary obedience over a bed of grace. Aim for missionary obedience over a bed of grace. God is calling us to do sometimes scary, sometimes difficult things to tell people about Jesus. And we're doing it over the foundation of grace. You will not be a perfect missionary. You will not be a perfect disciple. You will not perfectly tell people about Jesus. And sometimes you won't even tell them about Jesus, right? But we are called to obey our master, to go make disciples. And we do it knowing that he is gracious. He is loving. He is kind. And he will use the work of messed up sinners like you and me to change the lives of the people around us. We just have to be willing to obey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for, for this time to, to come together and, and put...
put away the newspaper and the television and, and the Facebook feed and, and just enjoy the presence of each other and, and enjoy you. Father, I pray that we will see through your word a, a call, through this, this sermon from Haggai, a call to faithfulness. God, we, we know that we are unfaithful. We know that we break your law more than we should, but we know your grace is real, and we know that promise of blessing is true. And so, Father, let us rest in and rejoice in the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to save and bless sinners like us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.